5 this morning. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 5. And <clears throat> let's read verse 13 and then we'll, we'll have a word of prayer. <clears throat> Matthew 5 verse 13 says, Ye are the salt of the earth, but if the salt have lost his savour, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden under the foot of men. Let's have a word of prayer. <clears throat> Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to come and spend time around your word. Lord, I pray this morning that you would just uh, speak to each of our hearts, that you would meet us where we're at this morning. You would teach us, refresh us, challenge us through your word. Lord, I pray that you would empower me through the Spirit now, and that, Lord, it would be your words, it would be your thoughts, your understanding, and that, Lord, you would be honoured and glorified now in all that we do. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, of course, if you remember, towards the end of last year, we started a series looking at some of the parables of our Lord. Um, before Christ went to the cross, of course, he spent three and a half years on earth teaching uh, and preaching unto the people. And one of the main methods that he used when teaching the people was parables. And of course, we talked about how most often when we think of a parable, we think of an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. But in fact, there's uh, other types of parables. There's only one form in which uh, the parables are found. Our Lord, in fact, used three different types of parables throughout his ministry. Our Lord used parable sayings, he used parable similitudes, and of course he used the parable stories to teach the people. And so we began our series by looking at some of the sayings uh, of our Lord. Uh, these parable sayings we defined as being short, instructive sayings involving some likeness or comparison. And so we've looked at a series of them. We haven't looked at all of his sayings, but we looked at the eight of them. And, and this morning now we're going to move on and we're going to look at some of the Lord's similitudes. Now Thayer defines a similitude as a comparison of one thing with another in the form of a simile or allegory. And basically it's the idea of something is like something else. Um, and that's how we find these similitudes that the Lord uses. And the first of these similitudes that I want us to consider uh, this morning is found here in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 13. And I got a little bit worried this morning in adult Sunday school when Darren turned here and I thought he was going to steal all my thunder. But thankfully he just read the verse and mentioned it. And this morning we've got time to consider exactly what Matthew chapter 5 verse 13 teaches us. Where Christ here likens the believer uh, unto salt. He says that ye are the salt of the earth. You know, our Lord often took some of the, the simple things in life and he used those simple things to illustrate great truths, to teach great uh, important things unto us. And this similitude before us this morning is a wonderful example of this. You know, salt is such a, a simple, common commodity, and yet Christ uses it here to teach some really important truths unto us as believers. And Christ used this parable on three separate occasions. 
uh, throughout his ministry. The first of them is here in Matthew chapter 5, where Christ is, of course, uh, preaching uh, the Sermon on the Mount. He's teaching the people. And Christ uh, speaks these words here in verse 13 immediately after the Beatitudes. Okay, John read for us verses 1 through uh, to 13. In the first 12 verses there, you've got the Beatitudes listed. And it's immediately after that that we find verse 13, ye are the salt of the earth. And so here in Matthew chapter 5, it speaks about our responsibility as believers, as followers of Christ, as citizens of heaven, our responsibility here on earth. We're the salt of the earth. Christ used the parable a second time in Mark chapter 9 and verse 50. Let's just turn over there. Mark chapter 9 and verse 50. It says, Salt is good, but if the salt hath lost his saltness, wherewith will you season it? Have salt in yourselves and have peace one with another. So here Christ uses the parable for a second time in his ministry. And here the parable is given at the end of a section where Christ teaches us about sacrificing here on earth to overcome sin and temptation and to be what the Lord wants us to be. If you start reading from verse 43 with me, Christ says, And if thy hand offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter into life maimed than having two hands to go into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched, where the worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. And if thy foot offend thee, cut it off, for it is better for thee to enter, uh, enter halt into life than having two feet to be cast into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched, where their where worm dieth not, uh, and the fire is not quenched. And if thy eye offend thee, pluck it out. It is better for thee to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire, where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. For every one shall be salted with fire, and every sacrifice shall be salted with salt. And so Christ here has talked about this idea of sacrificing to overcome sin and temptation here on earth, sacrificing to be what he wants us to be, which of course is a living sacrifice seasoned with salt unto the Lord. And it's in this context we then find in verse 50 the parable given, salt is good, but if the salt hath lost his saltness, wherewith we season it. Have salt in yourselves and have peace one with another. And so again, the Lord's using the parable here to emphasize our responsibility as believers. Our responsibility to retain our saltness so that we might be an acceptable sacrifice unto the Lord. And then the final use of the parable is found in Luke chapter 14. Just turn over there with me. Luke 14. Luke 14 and verse 34. We read, Salt is good, but if the salt have lost his savour, wherewith shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land, nor yet for the dunghill, but men cast it out. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. So for the final time, Christ uses the parable again. And this time it comes at the end of Christ's discussion on what it means to be one of his disciples. Okay, look in verse 25 with me. It says, And there were, uh, and there went great multitudes with him, and he turned and said unto them, If any man come to me, and hate not his father and mother and wife and children, 
and brethren and sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you intending to build a tower sitteth not down first and counteth the cost, whether he hath sufficient to finish it? Lest happily after he hath laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, all that behold it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going to make war against another king sitteth not down first and consulteth whether he be able with ten thousand to meet him that cometh against him with twenty thousand? Or else while the other is yet a great way off, he sendeth an ambassage and desireth conditions of peace. So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. And so this time is given at the end of this passage, which I'm sure we know well, on discipleship, where Christ talks about what we, you know, loving him more than anything else, putting him first to be his disciple. And yet again, the Lord gives this parable. He says, salt is good, but if the salt have lost his savor, wherewith shall it be seasoned? And so Christ again uses it here to speak about what is expected of us disciples. As disciples of Christ, what is expected, what is required as we live here on earth. And so in all three, it really sums up what's required of us. What's required of us as believers, as his disciples on earth, that we are to be salt unto the earth. But what exactly does that mean? What exactly does it mean that we are to be salt unto the earth? What does this parable teach us as believers? Well, consider with me, first of all, this morning, the figure in the parable. The figure or the picture, if you like, in the parable. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to use that as our main text this morning. Matthew 5 and verse 13. <clears throat> it says, Ye are the salt of the earth, but if the salt hath lost his savour, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing, but to be cast out and be trodden under the foot of men. In all three passages, Christ compares the believer, <clears throat> the disciple of Christ, to this simple commodity, salt. In Matthew 5, verse 13, he says, Ye are the salt of the earth. In Mark 9, he says, Have salt in yourselves. And in Luke, we read, Salt is good. Talking about the believer. And this description of the believer here, or this, this figure, telling us that we are salt, teaches us a, a couple of important truths. Okay, So these are sub-points, if you like, to that first main point, Okay, if you're taking notes. And so first of all here, the figure speaks of our worth. The figure speaks of our worth. You know, in our modern era, we don't really associate salt with worth, do we? You know, it's, it's cheap, it's readily available, it's quite common. We all have it at home in our pantry. It's, it's simple and easy to have. We don't really uh, associate it with worth. We don't appreciate the true value of salt. You know, throughout history, salt has been an important and valuable commodity to man. The Romans, for instance, you know, they placed great value on salt, so much so that in the early years of the, the Roman Republic, they actually built roads for this sole purpose of bringing salt from where it was farmed, bringing it into the city of Rome. So they built these, these wonderful roads for this sole purpose of bringing salt. Our English word salary is believed to have come from the Latin word salarium, which denoted the salt allotment that was given or issued to the Roman soldiers. 
And so literally, you know, we could say that salary means salt money. And so again, you see it speaks about the worth that salt had in those days in the Roman Empire. It had value. You see, the point is, in the ancient world, salt was greatly valued by men. And even in Israel, salt was highly prized. It was, it was sought after by the people. Go with me to Leviticus chapter 2, and we'll understand why salt was so important to the Israelites. Leviticus <coughs> chapter 2. <clears throat> Leviticus 2 and verse 13. It says, In every oblation of thy meat offering shalt thou season with salt, neither shalt thou suffer the salt of the covenant of thy God to be lacking from thy meat offering. With all thine offerings thou shalt offer salt. Here we see that God commanded the people that when they brought their sacrifices, <clears throat> one of the requirements was that it would be seasoned with salt. They had to bring this salt with their sacrifices unto the Lord. You know, for that reason alone, salt becomes very precious to the Jews, doesn't it? Very important to them for their worship unto the Lord. And we see something of this value placed upon salt expressed in Ezra chapter 4. Just turn over there with me. Ezra chapter 4. <clears throat> Ezra and Nehemiah. <clears throat> Ezra chapter 4 and verse 14. <clears throat> in Ezra 4 verse 14 we read these words it says now because we have maintenance from the king's palace and it was not meet for us to see the king's dishonor therefore have we sent and certified the king this is in verse 14 there at the start it says now because we have maintenance from the king's palace now although we can't really see it in the the English version here, the King James, the word translated we have, okay, now because we have, that word we have means salted. And the word maintenance here means salt. And so really a literal translation here would be we have salted, we are salted, sorry, with the salt from the palace. That's really what a literal translation here is. We are salted with the salt of the palace. See, once again, salt here speaks of being maintained, okay, being taken care of, being supported by the king. It speaks of worth, okay, value. The point is, all of this shows us the great value that salt had in the ancient world, even if we don't really understand it today. The people in Israel's day, they under, uh, in Jesus' day, sorry, they understood what he, what he meant. When he said salt here, they understood the worth attached to it, even in Israel. And so when our Lord here calls us, his followers, believers, he calls us the salt of the earth, Christ is declaring us to be of great value. That's the first thing he's saying, that we are of great value, that we are precious not only to God, which is a wonderful truth, but also that we are precious unto this world. You see, we are the salt of the earth. We are precious unto the earth. You see, the world may not know it, but believers are of great value to society. They may not always appreciate us, but believers are of great value to society. You know, we only have to look at Sodom's destruction to realize just how valuable God's people really are. Turn over to Genesis chapter 18 with me. <clears throat> In Genesis 18, <clears throat> God declared that if he found just 
ten righteous people, he would spare Sodom from destruction. Just ten. <clears throat> Genesis 18 and verse 32. <clears throat> it says, And he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak yet but this once. Peradventure ten shall be found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for ten's sake. You know, we have Abraham, of course, pleading Lot's case, but you know, he's pleading and asking, how many will it take for you to spare Sodom? And he gets down to ten, and the Lord says, says, if I find ten righteous people, I will spare Sodom from destruction. The whole city on the basis of ten righteous people. That should tell us something about the value of righteous people unto that city. It would have spared them from destruction. And to understand why exactly we are valuable, we need to understand the purpose of salt. Consider the purpose of salt, if you like. And so our second sub-point under this first point here this morning, the figure speaks of purpose. Okay, We said the figure speaks of worth. And secondly here, it speaks of purpose. You know, the Lord calling us the salt of the earth here speaks of our purpose as disciples of Christ living on this earth. And in particular, it speaks of two effects that we have upon this sinful world. It declares, first of all, the, the preserving effect that we have upon the world. You see, one of the primary uses of salt throughout history was as a preservative, wasn't it? A preservative. You know, until the refrigerator, salt was the chief ingredient used to preserve food, such as meat, to preserve it from rot, from decay. The reason is, of course, that salt draws out the water and so it slows down the growth of bacteria. You know, and thereby it slows the process of decay. It slows it down. And so when Christ here calls us the salt of the earth, he's speaking about the fact that we have a preserving effect upon this sinful world. You see, like salt, as believers, we are to preserve the world from decay and corruption. Slow it down. Slow down that rotting process. Well, how do we do that? How do we, as believers, accomplish this? Well, it's by living a life that's holy. It's by living a life that's godly, a life that reflects Him before this sinful world. One commentator wrote this. He said, The Lord expects His own to function as a moral spiritual influence, preventing the spread of sin's corruptive forces. You see, we live in a sinful, wicked world. We can't change that. That's the reality of the world we live in. But the Lord expects us in this world to be different. To be different. To be holy, as He is holy. Now, in Matthew chapter 5, this parable comes at the end of the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes where Christ has basically spoken about how different we are to be from the world as citizens of heaven. You just read with me from verse 3. <clears throat> Christ says there, Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you, 
and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Ye are the salt of the earth. Come straight after the Beatitudes, where Christ has listed all the attitudes that should be present in the life of the believer. And it really characterizes how different we are to be from the unsaved world. How, how distinct we're supposed to be as citizens of heaven. He said the Beatitudes describe godly character. He says, believers, we are to be holy, aren't we? We are to reflect the character of our Lord. First Peter chapter 1 tells us that. Let's just turn over there. First Peter 1. <clears throat> In 1 Peter 1, verse 13, it says, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ, as obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. Now, that's the, the instruction of the Lord unto us. We are to be holy as He is holy. We are to reflect His holy character unto this world that we live in. Now, that can only happen as we're changed by the Spirit. It's not something we can really accomplish on our own, is it? It's something accomplished by the Spirit. As we spend time in God's Word, as we spend time in prayer, the Spirit changes us little by little to be more like Him. And as we're changed, we are then made holy as He is holy. And we're able to have that positive effect, that positive influence upon the world. You know, we may not always be able to see uh, the, the effect we're having. You know, we may not always be able to see how we are preserving the world from this, this sin, this wickedness. You know, as one commentator rightly noted, salt acts secretly. We know that it combats decay, though we cannot see it perform its task. Its influence is very real, nonetheless. It's true, isn't it? Salt acts secretly. We know what it's doing. We know it's preserving the meat, but we can't see it doing it. And that's the point. We can't always see the effect of our presence upon this world. We can't always see the effect of our presence upon our school, where we're going as young people. Can't always see the effect that our presence has upon our workplace, the people we work with. Can't always see the effect upon our unsafe family, our community, our country. But we are having an effect by our holy character. Our holy character, our reflection of Him, slows the, character, the, the decay sorry, of this wicked world. But notice that you know, we're not told we can stop the decay, are we? Salt doesn't stop the decay of meat, it slows it down. We can't stop the decay of the world, all we can do is slow it. As, as Paul said in 2 Timothy 3 verse 13, he said, But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse. They will. Deceiving and being deceived. It's a reality. The world is going to get worse. And it will continue to get worse until Christ comes again. But as Christians, as the salt of the earth, our presence is to slow that decay, to slow it down, to have an influence upon this world. You know, this also ought to remind us of the necessity of being in 
the world, but not being part of it. But if, you know, we're the salt of the earth, and so we must be in the world to salt the world, don't we? We have to be part of it, but not of the world. We have to be in it, not of it. We have to live in this world. Now, we can't withdraw ourselves from all contact with the world and become like monks, can we? Living in a monastery. That's not going to have much effect upon the world. If we take all the salt out of the world, we put it over here somewhere. It's not going to have much of a preserving effect, is it? You see, as believers, we have to still live in this world. We have to be in the world. We have to work in the world. We have to go to school in the world. We have to go to these places in the world. We have to be part of it in that sense, but not of the world, not like the world. Stand different. So we might have that preserving effect upon the world. Not only does this figure speak of a preserving effect that we are to have, it also speaks of a seasoning effect as well. You see, the second major use for salt is seasoning, isn't it? You know, we all take it every evening and we put it upon our, our meal. We put a bit of salt on it to enhance the flavor of the food we're eating. And so when we apply this idea of seasoning to the believer, it suggests that we are to enhance and enrich the life of those around us. See, our presence should encourage and bless others. Commentator Butler said this, he said, Sin curses, but Christianity blesses. Christians should not be deadbeats, or they will bless no one and dishonor the Lord. Those professing Christians who are of a sour disposition, moody, always complaining, selfish, ill-mannered, lazy, difficult to get along with, and unpleasant do not add a good seasoning effect to those around them. They're not like salt, but more like vinegar. This is true, isn't it? You know, if our character doesn't reflect the Lord, then we don't have much of a seasoning effect, do we? We're a sour effect upon the world. See, like salt, we are to season the lives of those around us, be a blessing unto them by our attitude, by our words, by our conduct. Yeah, the Apostle Paul understood this truth when he wrote to the Colossian believers in Colossians 4 and verse 5 and 6. He said, Walk in wisdom toward them that are without, redeeming the time. Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salts. Now we're to walk in wisdom towards those who are without and make sure our speech is with grace, that it's seasoned with salts under this world around us, that it has a seasoning effect. And so it's clear that as the salt of the earth, it speaks of our value, and why are we valuable? Because we have a preserving and a seasoning effect upon the world. When we are living as the Lord wants us to, as we're conducting ourselves as He wants us to, holy as He is holy. But as we read on in chapter 5, verse 13 there, we see there is a word of warning given, isn't there? About the failure to be what the Lord calls us to be. So consider secondly here, the second main point this morning, the failure in the parable. We've looked at the figure in the parable. Now let's consider the failure in the parable. Look in verse 13 again. It says, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt have lost his savour, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing, but to be cast out and to be trodden under foot of men. Now the second half of the parable, there's a warning given about failure. A warning given about when salt loses something. And the consequence of that failure is the loss of value, the loss of worth. 
And this warning is given a prominent mention in all three instances of the parable. Matthew 5, Mark chapter 9, and Luke 14. In all three instances, this failure is mentioned. And the failure, of course, that Christ is speaking about here is the loss of saltiness. In fact, in Mark chapter 9, we read the words, but if the salt have lost his saltness, sums it up. The salt has lost his saltness. The failure that Christ is speaking about is salt losing the very quality that makes it effective in preserving and seasoning the world. The very quality that makes it valuable. You take it away, then it's, it's worthless, isn't it? It's no longer fit for purpose. In Matthew and Luke, the wording, sorry, the wording of the failure is slightly different. In both these passages, we read the words, it says, but if the salt have lost his savour. So Mark said, have lost his saltness. Matthew and Luke both say, have lost his savour. Slightly different word. The failure is, lo- is loss of savour. Now that is one Greek word. Okay? Loss of savour is from one Greek word. And it's the Greek word moros, which you can guess we get our English word moron from. That's where it comes from, this word moros. Commentator Vincent says that the word means dull, sluggish, stupid, or silly. That's what the Greek word means. And so when you take that word and you apply it to salt, it speaks of salt becoming dull, becoming tasteless, or flat. Now concerning this loss of taste and loss of saltiness, one commentator wrote this. He said, our modern salt is pure and does not lose its flavor. But the salt in Jesus' day was impure and could lose its flavor, especially if it came into contact with the earth. Once the saltiness was gone, there was no way to restore it. Another writes this, he says, The salt from the marshes and lagoons, or from the rocks in the neighborhood of the Dead Sea, easily acquires a stale or alkaline taste because of its mixture with gypsum and other substances. So the point is that the the loss of saltiness here, the loss of savor, came because it was mixed. It was adulterated. It was polluted by other things. Okay, polluting salt. You know, this is not really something we experience today, is it? You know, we go to the shop and we buy a pure, pure salt and we have it in our cupboard and it's fine. It lasts forever. We don't really experience this idea of it becoming dull, losing its saltiness. You know, the people in Christ's day, they would have experienced this firsthand. They understood what Christ was saying. They knew what it meant to have salt that it lost its savor, lost its saltiness. And they also understood what Christ was saying in his next words when he said that salt that loses its savor becomes worthless. It's a useless commodity. He goes on there in Matthew chapter 5. He says, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt have lost his savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing, but to be cast out and to be trodden under foot of men. So Christ, he says, it's, it's good for nothing, but to be cast out and to be trodden under the foot of men. In Luke, our Lord adds to this and he says, It is neither fit for the land, nor yet for the dunghill, but men cast it out. The point is that salt that has lost its saltiness, its savour, has lost all value and therefore all all usefulness. It's worthless to man. It's so useless that Christ says there in Luke that it cannot even be cast out on the land to 
you know, maybe add some fertilizer to it. And it's not even good to put on the compost heap, the, the dung hill. You can't even put it in there and add something to, the, to your compost. Christ says it's worthless. All you can do with it is cast it on the streets and be trampled by men. You see, what was once a very valuable and very useful commodity has now turned into something that's completely useless and worthless. Why? Because it's lost its very substance, saltiness, its character, its savor. And so it's become useless. It's no longer fit for purpose. And the spiritual application here is clear, isn't it? You know, we are the soul of the earth. And as we said earlier, this means that we are of great value. Why? Because we have a preserving effect and a seasoning effect upon this world. But if we lose our saltiness, if we lose our savour, then we become useless. And thereby we become worthless unto the world. And worthless unto the Lord in that sense too for service. And so what does it mean for us to lose our savour? We said earlier that the word translated lost his savor here is the Greek word moros. And when you apply that word to a person, it speaks of someone playing the fool. In Romans, we see it translated in Romans 1 verse 22, it's translated, they became fools when they rejected the Lord. They became fools. And so here when we apply it to the believer, it speaks about a failure of character. A failure of character. It speaks of us, instead of being what we should be, instead of behaving wisely before the world, we become as a fool before the world. Become foolish in our actions, foolish in our character. This is someone who allows themselves to become mixed and marred by the corruption of the world. Commentator Butler writes this. He says, Christians can lose their moral and spiritual savor by playing the fool and disobeying the commands of God and leaving God out of their life. They can lose their valuable savor by mingling with the world and becoming corrupt. Now we can lose our savor by mingling with the world and becoming corrupt, by becoming just like them. We lose our savor. We lose our saltiness by becoming polluted by the world. In 1 John chapter 2, it talks about this idea of worldliness. Just turn there, 1 John <clears throat> chapter 2. First John 2 and verse 15, it says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Now here we see this idea that all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father. It's not of God. It's of the world. And we're not to seek after those things. Worldliness, becoming like the world, destroys our effectiveness as believers. It destroys our effectiveness in this world to preserve and season. You see, our saltiness as believers is all about being different from the world, isn't it? It's all about being different. It's all about having a godly influence upon the world. 
But if we simply throw that aside and we become like the world, if we throw off all moral restraints and we live in sin, then we've lost our saltiness. It's gone. The commentator Butler summed it up well. He said, when a believer falls into sin, he risks losing his testimony completely. A Christian cannot lose his soul, but he can lose his savour. And when he loses his savour, he will become worthless for Christian service. It sums it up well. Beloved, we cannot lose our salvation. That's a wonderful, glorious truth, isn't it? Can't lose our salvation. But we can, by our sin and by our continuance in it, lose our testimony, lose our saltiness. And it comes to the point where we become worthless for service. We're only fit to be cast out on the street and trampled by men. We become worthless to the Lord. Because our character becomes so marred that the Lord can't use us to salt this earth anymore. Our character becomes so damaged in the eyes of our workmates, our school friends, our family, that we can no longer get their respect. They're no longer looking at us and seeing something different. We've destroyed our testimony. We've lost our saltiness. Commentator Hendrickson wrote this. He said, so many people who never read the Bible are constantly reading us. If, our con- if in our conduct we are untrue to our calling, our words will avail very little. It's true. There's so many people in the world who have never read the Bible. They're not going to do it, but they're reading you. They're reading me. They're looking at us to see if we're true to what we say, what we, what we preach, what we teach. And if we're not true to it, then our words are going to have very little effect upon this world. Beloved, we are to be the salt of the earth. And this world desperately needs our godly influence. It needs our influence in the workplace. It needs our influence in the schools. It needs our influence in the community. It needs our influence. Beloved, if we lose our saltiness, then we lose all value. And we lose all effectiveness for Christ in this world. And we pray and ask the Lord to help us today to keep our saltiness in this, in this world. Let's close in a word of prayer. Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. And Lord, we're all challenged this morning about this idea of being the salt of the earth. And Lord, may you help us to daily be in your words, daily be in prayer, to daily keep our hearts right before you, and may you change us little by little to be more like you, so that, Lord, we might indeed be uh, salt unto the earth, we might have that preserving effect, that seizing effect, Lord, in the schools, in, the, in our, fa- our extended family, in the, the community, in our workplaces, that we might have this effect upon the world and that people might indeed be drawn to see there's something different and come to you before it's eternally too late. Lord, work in our hearts today. Help us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name.